0: Welcome to China in Context, I'm Duncan Bartlett. People who talk about international relations often sound like weather forecasters. That's because the language of meteorology, it's constantly used as a metaphor to describe the relationship between countries. It's so common to talk of a cold war or a warm relationship that we hardly even notice that such terms are clichés. I've read many articles which describe the current relationship between the United States and China as icy or frosty, and this terminology seems familiar to Joe Biden. At the recent G7 summit in Hiroshima, he predicted a thaw in relations with Beijing, as both sides move beyond what he called the silly Chinese act of sending a giant surveillance balloon over the United States only the most recent in a series of incidents that have fueled what seems to be like a descent towards confrontation. Well, on today's podcast, we'll be considering the messages Joe Biden and his team are sending to China and how they might be interpreted by Beijing. To discuss this issue, I'm delighted to be joined by a renowned author and journalist who's watched China for many seasons and whose recent book on international politics is entitled Will China Dominate the 21st Century? He's Jonathan Fenby, a research associate at the SOAS China Institute. Jonathan, welcome to China in Context.
1: Thank you. I'm very glad to be here.
0: Well, SOAS commissioned me to start making this podcast a couple of years ago. um, and During that time, I've had the pleasure to discuss China with many distinguished guests, but I've been particularly looking forward to speaking with you. Joe Biden said that he foresees a thaw in U.S.-China relations. How long do you think it will take for the ice to melt?
1: Um, I think it will be a long time before the sun comes out, (laughs) to use a a different meteorological uh, image there. I think the U.S. and China are more or less set in a position of non-understanding between each other well it may be confrontational uh, at times um but uh, i can't see the ice really breaking all across uh, the relationship for some time to come
0: well i'm picking up rather complex messages from the united states let's take the final communique from the g7 meeting yeah. in hiroshima now that rebuked china over its increasing military activity in the East and South China Sea. Uh, It was also critical of China's human rights record. And yet we've got the U.S. Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, who's going to go to China soon, actually. She's been speaking of a healthy economic engagement with China. That seems a rather different message. It is
1: is indeed. It's two different messages. And I think what we're seeing um, after the G7 and after the Yellen speech is um, an attempt to follow a two-track policy by Washington uh, towards China, um, which is, uh, on the one hand, Yellen keeping up uh, business relationships. A lot of uh, large American companies, of course, are deeply invested uh, in China, starting with Apple, um, not just for the cheap uh, supplies and components which China uh, provides, but also for access to the vast Chinese domestic market. And that has always been a very important driver uh, for American companies. And we're getting the hope, certainly among financial companies, uh, Wall Street of um, getting into the Chinese financial system, household system, pensions, uh, insurance, uh, and so on. You've got that on the one hand. On the other hand, you have got the growing, I think, awareness in the United States of a national security case uh, uh, against China, that China is threatening the US position uh, in the world or is seen as as being so by um, a lot of politicians in America. And what you've got is pretty much a bipartisan approach, hostility towards China. And uh, Biden has to play to that. You have the national security uh, issue. You have the question of reshoring, the attempt to rebuild uh, American economy uh, in various ways, which would, in effect, shut out China. And you have the restrictions on So called dual use uh, technology, uh, which we've seen and which may, uh, I would say, uh, increase over the weeks and months to come.
0: Well, those are good points, actually. Could you put this into some sort of economic context for us? I was speaking with a nationalist in Beijing this week, and he was gloating over the fact that China's economy is set to grow much faster this year than the economies of the United States. Or indeed, the big European countries. And yet other reports keep telling me that China's economic growth cycle has peaked and it's all downhill from now on. What's going on?
1: I think what's happening on the Chinese side is that the legacies of the go-go superpowered growth, which we got used to over the last few decades, um, that legacy is coming back to bite uh, the Chinese authorities. This is in the form of debt, of low consumption, of over-reliance on fixed asset uh, investment, uh, the huge property uh, issue uh, at the moment, um, with a lot of property companies uh, in difficulties. uh, And of course, the demography, as China as working population gets older, and all those uh, elements have to be dealt with by the authorities in Beijing. And I think they are very important, because what we are now getting is the real test of whether the Communist Party regime, uh, which has ruled China, uh, since Deng Xiaoping, through uh, largely increasing wealth and making people richer, better off, whether if that uh, wealth accumulation slows down as i think it will in the coming years and it is already um, and this is to speak with talk without uh, a new outbreak of covid which is reported uh, by some people from china at the moment um, all that faces uh, xi jinping and his colleagues with a, a whole series of domestic issues which translate in effect into a power question of whether the CCP, the Communist Party, can keep uh, its hold on China.
0: I'd like to talk to you about two ideas which I think may be linked. The US talks about de-risking from Mm. China. China talks about being more self-reliant. Can you help us interpret those concepts and suggest how they might be viewed together?
1: well they they are in a sense the mirror images uh, one of the other um we've had we've now got de-risking rather than decoupling uh, apparently to uh assuage european sensibilities who don't like decoupling but de-risking, which means that <clears throat> companies and countries should take less of a risk in being dependent on China if China cuts off uh, supply uh, and access to its markets. From China, the Chinese point of view, I would say that um, it's been a natural follow-on from Xi Jinping's attempt to build up the domestic power of the party state uh, internally that this party state should be self-reliant, should not be dependent on outside powers. And we've had repeatedly in recent years statements from the leadership, from the Politburo, from Xi himself on down, um, about how China faces a hostile world, faces encirclement, faces containment, uh, and the push there is towards dual circulation, as it's called, which is to build up the domestic economy so it can stand on its own feet without dependence on uh, foreign uh, powers who might be hostile to it, and at the same time keep up a thriving export market, which it needs for the economy.
0: Now, in your books and your articles, you often note what you see as a tightening of control over business activity in China by the Communist Party. Can you say more about that?
1: Yes, uh, the the Communist Party is a unilateral power uh, base for Xi Jinping, uh, and everything has to come under it. As he says, uh, the party leads north, east, west, south and centrally. Uh, It is in charge of everything. uh, And that includes spurning, turning back any kind of Western influence, as we saw in a document uh, published now 10 years ago which warned against uh, such notions as democracy uh, popular competitive democracy the rule of law separation of powers constitutionalism uh, and so on Uh, and uh, this uh, attempt to build the party state and strengthen the party state uh, has included in recent years uh, really trying to co-opt Private business, a private enterprise into the party state. Uh, and a big question with China's relationships with the United States uh, and Europe and Japan is the extent to which foreign invested uh, companies will be brought under that umbrella of party control. But I think for the leadership in China, a big independently operating private sector is something which they uh, fear, just as they fear political uh, independence and opposition.
0: So what do you think Xi Jinping's vision is then of China's relations with other countries, not just the United States, but also with Europe?
1: I think he wants uh, China should be free to have its own way, basically. Uh, We're going back In a sense to imperial days and the imperial uh, belief that China is an exceptional country which should be treated uh, exceptionally uh, alone between earth and heaven uh, and um, that that's the way it's going. But, the, but on a more practical basis, uh, I don't think she wants to cut off relationships with the United States, with the rest of the world. He wants to nurture them, but nurture them in a way where China is in the driving seat.
0: Can you imagine a world in which China is no longer in need of vital supplies from the United States? I mean, I'm thinking about the closure of KFC, the closure yeah. of Shanghai Disneyland or indeed that the united states is completely separate from china in the realms of business and commerce and walmart stops stocking goods that have been manufactured in china i mean back in the old days of the cold war the u.s economy and the soviet economy were quite separate but that seems an impossible dream now between china
1: and america I think it is. Um, I mean, I think the dependence runs so deeply both ways that uh, a complete decoupling uh, is uh, not not on the cards at all. De-risking, in a sense, implies preparing for an outcome which may not uh, come to pass. And that, I think, is much more likely.
0: Can I draw you out on that? When you say an outcome that may not come to pass, what are you talking about? A a, a conflict?
1: A conflict, yes, a conflict. I mean, I I don't think that a military conflict uh, between the two uh, major economies in the world is likely at the moment, because neither really has much interest uh, in it.
0: But on the other hand, somebody said to me at a meeting the other day, Jonathan, if countries prepare for war and they uh, build up their arsenals and increase their troop numbers and raise their defence budget, that makes war more likely.
1: It makes war more likely. It makes the risk of an accident uh, more stronger uh, and more dangerous uh, indeed. And uh, I think there is an awareness um, on both sides of the need to, as it were, to have a dialogue between Washington and Beijing, which preempts uh, the possibility of an accident. But uh, as tensions rise, as national security issues become more important on both sides, that may be a fainter and fainter hope.
0: Well, I very much hope that we'll have an opportunity to come back and look at some of those issues in more depth in another podcast. But for now, thank you very much, Jonathan, for your insights into this fascinating and important issue.
1: And I'm sure there'll be much more to say uh, in the weeks and months ahead.
0: That was the author and journalist, Jonathan Fenby, a research associate at the SOAS China Institute in London, which makes this podcast. You can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.